everybody. Welcome back to Please Drink Responsibly, a drinker's guide to American history. Thanks for listening. I'm alcohol historian Lisa Wiley and also your host. Hey, my first episode about Norwich, Connecticut, if you heard it, I found out how much Leffingwell and those guys bought the city from the Mohegan Indians in 1659 for. It was $350. Nine miles square, including waterfront, in 1659 for $350. That's a bargain, huh? I found a book at an auction with a bunch of other books about Norwich, so alcohol history one, hidden interesting facts zero. Also, don't forget to call me out on my mistakes and I'll correct myself on the show and send you a sticker for busting me. So far there's only been one, but again, I don't claim to be a real historian. I like to be correct, you know, and I've done lots of research, but mistakes can happen and I would love to hear about it. So message me. Today I'm drinking in Reno, Nevada. (laughs) Whoa, Reno is boozy as boozily possible. Kind of the anecdote to the very religious Salt Lake City of the last episode. So I've been to both uh, Reno and Salt Lake and my choices in Reno were far more questionable There's plenty of room there for strong adult choices, especially now that Nevada has recreational marijuana, too. Woohoo! Bars can be open in Reno, Nevada 24 hours a day. Wow, right? But some are not, and they close at same times between 1 and 4 a.m., so look it up before you go. But you can serve any time, and lots of them do. Also, there's no time whatsoever that alcohol cannot be purchased in a store or a casino. Reno's motto... It's the biggest little city in the world, but it also has been named the booziest city in Nevada. I have a sober friend who lives there, so I know it's possible, which I feel like if you can be sober in Reno, you can be sober anywhere, so good for her. Because you could like decide at 2 a.m. to begin your drinking morning, and it would be perfectly legal. But let's talk about free drinks in Reno. Back in the day, like the casino heyday, I'm thinking of that movie with Robert De Niro and Sharon Stone, you know, called Casino. It sounds like in Nevada, free booze was pouring out all over, mostly to get you to stay and make poor decisions, right? Play, drink for free. But I guess the gaming revenues back then were really high or something, so casino owners were making a ton of money from gaming. Getting you ripped was really to their advantage. Now, I'm a beer drinker and not really a gambler, but nowadays the casinos are all owned by, like, bigger interests corporations and stuff, so they have analyzed the data and have decided in modern times that free hooch doesn't really pay off for them. You can still drink for free in Reno, but you have to be actively gambling for a minimum in a lot of cases, like the higher stakes tables and stuff. At some video poker bars, which is where I actually like to play, although I rarely do, there's an alert on the back of the machine that tells the server if you're eligible for free drinks. So you can't just like put a dollar in the penny slots and drink for free. Island slot waitresses are trained to spot active gambling and offer you a beer or a watered down mixed drink or a house wine. And varying between casinos, there's a really large gray area of policies. So it's not exactly the free flow of booze you hear about from the 60s through the 80s. I mean, unless you're like a higher stakes gambler, which I'm not, never have been. So for someone like me, you have to weigh whether it's worth it for you to sit and drink and pay or pay to gamble and drink for free, but in a kind of limited, well-drink sort of way. It's a a very careful calculation. 
based on what you like more. But I'll tell you, it sure is easy to come by hooch in a casino. It's basically everywhere. When I was there, you could drink dollar beers whether you were gambling or not. So I could play my low stakes like video poker and enjoy $1 Sierra Nevadas. So that was cool. It wasn't a total loss. No, no, it, it was. <laughs> I think I lost quite a few quarters. I've always kind of wondered if I ever won in a casino, if I'd be one of those gambling addicts you see in the middle of the night in Reno, you know, with a laser focus on the slot and that look that they haven't left in hours. Who knows? Maybe I would. Reno history. The Martin tribe lived there in prehistoric times. There is a 9,500-year-old evidence of cavemen in this area. So that's cool. I wondered what these people drank because, you know, that's what I do. And so I did a little digging, and the most recent theory is that they may have fermented um, fruit for ethanol. Caveman booze. It's, it's so cool and kind of crazy. They're doing DNA studies to determine when our bodies started becoming able to process alcohol. And then they can trace, like, about the time we started doing it. I guess an enzyme in our guts and throats called HDA4 is required to process ethanol, which is the drunky part of booze. Scientists are trying to pinpoint when this enzyme became part of human genes, which again is a great deal of science for me, but it's real cool. In later times, the Great Basin tribes made of uh, Paiute, Shoshone, and Washoe lived in Reno. Not a lot of action in this region really until 1850, mostly people passing through on their way to California on the California Trail and indigenous people. The U.S. got the land in the old Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty but this area wasn't really heavily, heavily populated uh, by Americans until the Comstock Lode. Uh, the Comstock Lode was millions of dollars of silver and some gold just 20 miles from Reno. And then, much like the gold rush, people came flowing in. There's really no better illustration of the Wild West than Reno and its sister Virginia City, which is just 20 miles away and right on the Comstock Lode. In the mid-1800s, because of the uh, mining, Reno was a, the larger of the two towns, Las Vegas, um, between Reno and Las Vegas. Las Vegas wasn't even settled until 1905. Here's a story. A drunken man by the name of John Millian broke into the home of a well-known, very well-loved prostitute in Virginia City. He robbed and violently killed her. I think he beat her to death. It's terrible. But this prostitute was basically the queen of the town. And he was a drunken idiot. Her name was Julia Bulette, and everybody adored her. This is like the OG hooker with a heart of gold story. Julia was known to nurse the sick, tend soup kitchens, and she worked as a firefighter. <laughs> she would like pedal the water pump, and she really loved doing it. Really, and so they made her an honorary member of Engine Company One. So sweet. Her killer, though, after being found with her jewelry, confessed to the crime and was hanged. It was the first hanging in Reno, um, and Mark Twain was there to witness the hanging and wrote about it. In 1959, Bonanza made an episode about Julia. Actually, Bonanza um, takes place in Virginia City, which I didn't realize until this episode. And it's adorable, except for the Chinese character, which is kind of a little bit racist. <laughs> Anyway, the show is pretty fictionalized. Julia wasn't quite that fancy as she's portrayed in the show. Uh, I've watched some of the episodes writing this and uh, I might be a fan. Did you know that saloon girls and prostitutes were different? I guess I didn't, or 
I never really thought about it. There were three types of women who worked in saloons. Prostitutes, dance hall or hurdy-gurdy girls, and saloon girls who they just kind of dressed up really pretty and encouraged a free flow of cash from a man's wallet, kind of like a geisha. Hurdy-gurdy girls would dance with you for the price of a ticket sold by the bartender. And they weren't usually uh, the same as prostitutes, or they didn't do both. Uh, the Old West in the Reno area, though there were all manner of prostitution, from the high-class establishments to what they called cribs, which were one- or two-room shacks or rows of rooms where the women would ply their trade. And then there were plain old, like, back-alley streetwalkers. All of it was fueled by the saloons. Prostitution is still legal in some Nevada counties, but we'll talk um, a little more about Nevada hookers in a little bit. In the early days, people on the way to California through the Sierra Nevadas in search of gold and silver brought their games of chance with them, dice and cards. So if you didn't strike a payload, you could take someone else's off of them in a friendly game of cards or dice, sometimes not so friendly. President Lincoln appointed a governor of the Nevada Territory. His name was James Nye, and he wasn't really excited about the gambling. He tried measures to make it illegal, but it mostly didn't work, though. In the 1860s, Nevada was doing a lot. It became a state in 1864, and legislation went up and down on the issue of gaming. They were criminalizing, decriminalizing, regulating, strengthening, and unstrengthening legislation all on the issue of gaming. Making the games illegal only sent them underground and into back alleys. It was already sort of cemented into the culture of the area. So in 1869, five years after statehood, it decriminalized certain types of the more refined gaming, refined card games for low stakes. Some games paid out in cigars and others paid out in liquor, drinks. In the Civil War, again, like so many Western territories, the soldiers who were mustered protected the West and were Union supporters. Nevada also gave $400 million worth of silver ore to the war effort, so they basically paid their way through as well, like so many places in the West that I'm learning about. Reno was also named after a Civil War officer. His name was Jesse Reno. How about that? Reno's first brewery opened in 1868, uh, and then saloons popped up all over around this time serving whiskey mostly. In my research of Reno, I came across this list of Wild West names for whiskey, you know, like the indigenous Alaskans or Eskimos having all those words for snow. These people had just as many names for whiskey. I'm gonna give you my top 10 favorites. Coffin varnish, bug juice, corn squeezins, tongue oil, panther piss, bang juice, brave maker, Skull Varnish, Liquid TNT, and Truth Syrup. <laughs> I think those are so hilarious. I'm going to have some Skull Varnish. Turns out, in the turn of the 20th century, Reno was a much bigger town than Las Vegas. It's where Reno's, uh, Nevada's organized crime started. All through Prohibition, two men, James Red McKay and Bill Curly Graham, opened bootlegging, gaming, and prostitution casinos all over Reno including the famous Reno Stockade brothel. And they got really rich doing it. One of their casinos, the Bank Palace, was the largest gaming house in the country at the time. All of this was technically illegal, and James Red McKay spent several years of his life in prison. 
but he also did run a very healthy mob money laundering operation. The largest booze bust of Nevada prohibition was at Red's residence, where agents seized $75,000 worth of beer, wine, and liquor. That's a lot, especially in the 20s. Red McKay um, also opened the predecessor to the famous Cal Neva Resort and Casino owned in the 1960s by Frank Sinatra, which I'm sure I could do a whole episode about that place. <laughs> Here's another funny Reno Prohibition story. In 1925, squarely in the midst of Prohibition, Reno decided to build its train station. During construction, workers found bottles of champagne underground buried in an old abandoned cellar and so work completely stopped as the workers tried to drink this sour wine as fast as they could before agents could come and smash the bottles even though the corks were rotted and nobody knew how old the champagne was and they drank quite a few too before agents got there (laughs) gross uh let's talk about quickie reno divorces so reno had two answers to the great depression um, in order to make money In 1931, it legalized gaming and also relaxed its divorce requirements. You could now get a divorce after just six weeks of residency, which was quicker than almost anywhere in the country. And for reasons that were much more liberal, like irreconcilable differences, it was really hard at this time to get a divorce in the United States. So lots of people came to Reno. Um, The Reno Cure uh, is what people started calling it, and mostly women poured into the city to establish residency and dissolve their marriages. They would stay for just six weeks, stand before a judge, come out single again, and could be married again that afternoon if they wanted to. So boarding houses and dude ranches designed to accommodate these divorce-seeking women popped up all over, the pl- all over the city. It became an entire industry. The movie The Women from 1939 is an awesome illustration of this phenomenon, and it's also a really fun film. If you haven't seen it and you enjoy black and white movies, check it out. A good deal of it takes place in Reno with this like bunch of women waiting on their divorce. Reno had an airfield to train World War II airmen because of its uh, wide open skies in the desert. Stead Air Force Base is now the home of the annual air races. The military uh, at this time forced the closing of brothels, including the famous stockade uh, during the Second World War. During the 50s and 60s, the wild times seemed to move from Reno to Las Vegas, which was on its way to becoming the gaming mecca it is today. And Reno kind of lost its position as the biggest city in Nevada. Virginia City, um, the old mining town, is now an Old West tourist destination, complete with saloons and with swinging doors and ghost and old mine tours. Sounds kind of fun. Urban Dictionary lists the term Reno drunk. The definition is, when you get so drunk, you start acting belligerent and trashy, possibly ending with public vomiting. (laughs) Now you know, Reno drunk. Here's kind of a, well, it's a really sad tale of two Reno drinkers. In 1985, Raymond Belknap was 18 and James Vance was 20. And they spent an afternoon drinking and smoking weed and listening to a Judas Priest album called Stained Class. This was not new for the young men. They did this often. But on this December day, they each took the same shotgun and shot themselves in the head. Belknap died on the scene, 
but Vance lived. Um, James Vance uh, was seriously disfigured, though, as you would imagine after a shotgun blast to the head. When questioned for a motive, Vance stated that subliminal messages in the Judas Priest album made them do it, starting what was known in the 80s as the Satanic Panic. So Vance and his parents sued Judas Priest for $6.2 million. The band was ordered to Reno for the six-week trial where their music was played backwards and forwards at different speeds um, to determine if there were subliminal brainwashing messages. Rob Halford, the band's frontman, was even ordered to sing passages on the stand. The judge ruled that the band was not responsible, that it was alcohol and possibly mental illness which led to the suicide pact and not subliminal messages at all. Judas Priest's manager is quoted as saying at the time, if we were doing stuff like that, the messages would say, buy seven copies, not telling a couple of screwed up kids to kill themselves. And then after that, um, poor James Vance, Vance uh, the kid who was disfigured by the gunshot blast but lived, he died after three, um, three years after the trial of a drug overdose. Man, poor kid. Okay. A quick minute about prostitution because I promised. I know it's not about booze, but it's so interesting. And Nevada is the only state in which any form of prostitution is legal. So the history was that there were thriving red light districts in Reno till the turn of the 20th century. The reason was that there were hundreds of men, miners and workers and very few women. Prostitutes could make a killing. Around 1900 though, polite society and more, more women uh, started coming into the area and tried to outlaw the trade. But it was so embedded in the culture that outlawing it never really worked. They could only regulate it until World War II when the federal government declared that the entire town of Reno would be off limits to its servicemen unless brothels were shut down. So they did. That ban was lifted again, though, in 1948. Reno and Vegas both closed down their brothels as a um, with uh, like a public nuisance ordinance in 1951, even though prostitution was still technically legal in the state. It became up to the counties um, to decide if they would tolerate the sex workers, and lots of them do, lots of counties in Nevada. As of December 2018, there are 21, or were, sorry, 21 legal houses of ill repute in Nevada, including the famous Chicken Ranch and the Mustang Ranch. The courtesans, as they call themselves, are required to use condoms and undergo routine STD testing, so that's good. From the headlines, drunken dummies in Reno newspapers. L. H. Moon of Reno stood before a judge. Judge Bryson charged him with being intoxicated. To this, Mr. Moon replied, not guilty, your honor. I'm drunk, not intoxicated. 1929. Marlene Spencer, 82 years old, sued a red lobster in Reno for getting her so drunk that she fell in the parking lot and broke her hip. Miss Spencer's blood alcohol was 0.31. Damn, Grandma. That happened in 2017. Ralph Eastman of Reno, Nevada, was arrested for drunk and disorderly conduct and larceny after stealing 14 chickens from behind a hotel. Eastman wrung the necks of all 14 chickens, stuffed them into a sack, and gave them away to friends. Police found evidence in the form of feathers in Mr. Eastman's car. That happened in 1936. Steve Betty, 
1944, of Tahoe was jailed under suspicion of DUI, assault with a deadly weapon, and evading police. Mr. Betty knocked down a light pole and a street sign on his tractor. When officers attempted to stop him, he flipped them the bird, lowered the bucket of the tractor, and charged the police car. He missed and got cornered at a dead end. Then Mr. Beatty refused to exit the tractor and had to be physically removed in 2011. If you or someone you know has an alcohol problem, reach out to somebody or message me. I'll try to help with resources if I can. You can message me on Please Drink Responsibly, A Drinker's Guide to American History on Facebook. Our theme song is by Hank FMAO, available on SoundCloud, Cloud. And see you next time. Until then, please drink responsibly.